You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. I have a recurring daydream where I inexplicably discover an extra room behind the closet I'm recording in. It's my own personal office, and in my fantasies, it is glorious. There's a fine leather Regency armchair and ottoman for me to kick up on while I'm reading. There's a hundred-year-old pull-down map cabinet on the wall so I can stare purposelessly at the continental U.S. or Illinois circa 1908 and then do that thing where I let the map snap, roll up, and disappear the way I got in trouble for in elementary school. And center stage, there's the desk. An antique quarter-sawn oak draftsman's desk. Dark and woody and wonderful, with more than a dozen pull-out drawers for all my miscellaneous doodads and nonsense. In my dreams, it's perfect. And every last element can be found at Industrial Artifacts. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chalk-blocked with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar, searching for that fabulous kitchen table, or, sigh, building out your non-existent home office space, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. Check out the link in the episode notes or go to industrialartifacts.net today. And remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT, one word, to get 15% off your first order. One day, pull down map. One day. I was probably 10 when the magazine came. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe Highlights or Ranger Rick. Or maybe it wasn't for kids at all. Maybe it was National Geographic. I can't remember. All I know is that it contained page upon page of breathtaking photos. Of huge, thick-trunked trees that looked to be out of another world. Sandy white beaches, azure ocean, emerald green jungles, impossible rock formations. And then the animals. Tortoises, shockingly blue birds, shockingly red frogs, tiny, big-eyed, muppet-looking things, and huge climbing beasts that are like a cross between a lion and a mongoose. Oh, and the superheroes of the animal kingdom, the chameleon, with its eyes and its tongue and its camouflage like something out of mythology. And finally, the lemurs, like big, adorable cat monkeys that I just knew would love me. 
if only I had the chance to introduce myself. Which became my goal, to get there. Because all I needed to know was in those glossy pages, which told me that this was the greatest place in the world. And nobody seemed to know it but me. I began fixating on it in any map or globe I came across, a habit which I now realize I carry with me today. Plot me in front of a Mercator, and the first thing my eyes will do is find it, hidden in plain sight. I still share a knowing look, as if to say, one day, one day I'd go. One day I'd live there, all by myself. Well, my parents would have to come, and my best friend Sean, and my old best friend Jennifer, who'd moved to Colorado, and her sister, my brother too, I guess, if he played his cards right, and Kathy up the street, who I walked home every day, who I had a crush on that I had no idea what to do with, but the daydreams of her consumed me almost as much as the daydreams of the magical land we'd one day share. My teacher, Mrs. Ranny, she could come too, and I guess we'd have to bring her husband and her kids. Oh, and Bill Cho, my Taekwondo master, he'd love it there. And we'd need someone who knew how to kick stuff in case those mongoose lions got out of line. The more I thought about it, the larger the guest list became. But that was all right. There was plenty of space to go around. And lemurs enough for everybody. I absorbed every bit of knowledge I could about the flora and the fauna. I could tell you about the giraffe weevil and the vanga bird and the plowshare tortoise. But I didn't know a thing about the people, the politics, the history. And I certainly didn't know that my plan, to move so many people, willingly or not, to its shores, was not a new one or a unique one that another, not dissimilar plan had once existed, and that it was the worst plan that anybody had ever failed to make happen. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Madagascar. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Before we get to the plan, let's take a little while to correct 10-year-old me's blind spot with a little history of Madagascar. Because let's be honest, what do you know about it? Madagascar is the fourth largest island in the world, home to 27 million people with a rich, utterly unique culture and heritage. And until I started researching this story a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't have told you anything? Pretty much anything about them? Language? Uh, Madagascan main exports? Uh, say, uh, coffee? I don't know. Anybody want to Google me on that? Capital City. Not a clue. Hell, I now know, but I'm still unclear on how to pronounce it. Antananarivo, I think? There are 1.3 million people there, and I don't even know how to say it. That's messed up. So... Let's just get a little primer out of the way, and then we'll get to the plan. 
Madagascar broke off the side of India around 88 million years ago and was largely left alone until recently. It's that isolation that gave birth to its remarkably unique ecosystem, where an estimated 90% of the plants and animals are found nowhere else. Maybe as far back as 10,000 BC, there were humans foraging on the island, but the first permanent settlements don't spring up until much later. The archaeological evidence is mixed, with some anthropologists arguing that people showed up around 350 BC, and others putting the date 500 years later, approximately 250 AD. Either way, it's pretty remarkable that an island larger than Britain didn't become inhabited until at least the time of the Greeks. The first settlers were almost surely from Borneo, and by 600 AD, they were clear-cutting forest and driving the most remarkable species of the island, giant lemurs, giant predatory mongoose-like animals, flightless birds nearly 10 feet tall, to extinction. Around the same time, Arab sailors and traders discovered the island and the people already there, and some population mixing began. Sometime around 1000 AD, Madagascar began to receive African immigrants who spoke Bantu in Swahili. The Malagasy language shows all of these influences, plus French, Portuguese, and English, which we'll get to, which means that there must have been significant social, commercial, and, well, let's just say it, sexual ties between the inhabitants. But they were still divided into many small regional territories and domains. The first European to take note of the island was Marco Polo, who called it Madagascar because he, A, thought it was Mogadishu, and B, didn't know how to spell Mogadishu. The first major outside social pressure made landfall shortly after, not through the Portuguese, but through Afro-Arabs of the great ancient port city of Malindi in present-day Kenya. The Malindi immigrants brought writing, political organization, and Islam to the southeast of the island, quickly intermarrying with and blending into the local population. By the 1630s, this new people had created Madagascar's first country, Antimoro. Meanwhile, and unbeknownst to either European or Middle Eastern visitors, two other nascent nation-states were forming. In the southwest for the Mersarana, who branched out and quickly came to dominate most of the west as the Sakalava Empire. The other was the Marina Kingdom, which ruled over the Akopa Valley and Central Plateau regions inland, with a capital at Antananarivo, the current capital city of what is now the Republic. In 1787, a king rose up and unified all the Marina peoples. His name was... Oh, God. It's just, I fuck up so many names. Like, really, really simple names. And then... Oh, criminy. All right, let's give this a first pass. His name was... Andrianum Poinum... His name was... Andrianum Poinum Marina Dritten. Let's... Let's break it up into parts. Andrianum, Poinamirin, Andriant, Simitovia, Menandrium, Panjaka. That's one word. But through the magic of audio editing, <laughs> it is Andrianum, Poinamirin, Andriant, Simitovia, Menandrium, Panjaka. Close enough. Andrianum. Andriana. Andrianum Pointa Marina, for short, entered into the slave trade with the French, buying guns from them with which he subdued neighboring peoples, whom he sold for more guns to subdue more people. He also introduced Marina to a class system with nobles, commoners, and slaves. 
Andriana Pointa Marina died in 1810, leaving the whole of his kingdom to his son, Radama, along with one final command, that he should expand Marina until it had no frontier but the sea. Radama did a hell of a job. He allied himself with the English, driving out the French, as well as most of the pirates who continually tried to set up anarchical pirate utopias on Madagascar's shores. And I realized that is a pretty weird sentence to just let dangle there, so maybe it'll be a bonus episode for the Patreon supporters down the line. He drew and fortified an army that quickly overbore most of the island. The Betsimisaraka in the east, the Betsileo in the south, the Antakarana to his north, and half of the Sakalava kingdom to the northwest. The other half of the Sakalava, known as the Manabi, proved too formidable, though. So Radama conquered them through the only other way history knew how. Marriage. Under Radama, almost all of the island was unified for the first time. He did away with the slave trade, built an education system, and brought prosperity to the people of Madagascar. But he also brought colonialism, or a kind of colonialism light, with the London Missionary Society doing most of that educating and converting a large portion of the populace to Protestant Christianity. Radama died young in 1828, and he left no heirs. The rules of ascension said that the throne should go to the firstborn son of the king's eldest sister, a well-liked and formally educated young man named Rakatobi. But the rules of ascension hadn't met Radama's widow, Ramavo. You, you're good. You've sat through a whole bunch of obscure history from a small nation a long, long ways away. You're at this point not sure whether we're ever going to get to the plan that went so wrong that I teased up top. You've stayed with me, even though I can't pronounce literally anything that isn't endemic to the Great Lakes region. You're patient and attentive. And Ramavo, also known as Ranavalona I, is your just reward. Ramavo's marriage to Radama was a reward to her father from the king for helping to spoil an assassination attempt. She was his first wife, but not his favorite, and Radama basically ignored her in favor of his courtesans and the company of a drunken English missionary. When Radama died, a few of his generals conspired to help put her in power above the charming, but English-influenced, Rakatobi. On August 11, 1828, Ramavo declared that Radama had declared that she should be queen. With the army behind her, nobody had much room to quibble. On June 12, 1829, Ramavo was coronated Queen Ranavalona. Marina was a steadfastly patriarchal society where men were given wide political latitude and women were expected to mind the house and family. Many wondered how a woman would manage to rule. The answer? Really fucking forcefully. Queen Ranavalona made a hard turn on her late husband's legacy, quickly closing down the missionary schools and putting harsh restrictions on the freedom of speech and of movement of the English. In 1835, she banned the practice of Christianity, forced all the foreigners off the island. She broke off Madagascar's treaty with Great Britain and ceased nearly all imports and exports from anywhere outside the kingdom. She expanded further into the southern coast and nearly the entirety of the west, she raised a huge standing army, perhaps as large as 30,000 men. With that army, she successfully beat back attempts by the English, the French, and the English and the French to conquer her. The English and the French, in turn, called her crazy. Which, well, maybe. 
Rhonda Valona stood up to colonizers and for the traditions of her people, and she stood so strong and so tall that she scared the most powerful nations in the world away. That is pretty badass. But when Rhonda Valona banned Christianity, she also started killing Christians. Lots and lots of Christians, most of whom were her native subjects. And when she broke that treaty with Great Britain, the main part of it that she broke was the prohibition on slavery. Rhonda Valona was super into slavery. That 30K standing army, when they weren't intimidating the Europeans, they were killing, torturing, intimidating, and enslaving the peoples of the West and the South. But if you weren't a convert or from a neighboring nation, you had nothing to worry about. Except, like, virtually everything. To make up for the loss in trade and goods, Rhonda Valona instituted a new tax system, forced labor. Every free citizen was up for conscription as a temporary slave. The young and the old, weak and infirmed, people from all walks died by the score to build battlements, cannons, guns, and a grand palace for Ranavalona. The justice system under Ranavalona left something to be desired, too. She encouraged a traditional practice of trial by the ordeal of Tangina. Anybody, at any time, could accuse anybody else of whatever crime they wanted and that person would have to eat three pieces of chicken skin and some nuts of the tangina tree, which are extremely poisonous. If the accused threw up the chicken skins, they were innocent. If they died, they were guilty. And if they survived but didn't throw up the skins, they were guilty too, and would be poisoned some more. In 1838, perhaps as many as 100,000 people died either from the tangina poison or from the torture that came with not vomiting chicken skin. Between the executions and the torture and the forced labor and the pillaging and the burning of crops, oh, did I forget to mention that, the Ranavalona years weren't great for the people of Marina. During her reign, roughly 80% of her subjects died, and the population of the island writ large was cut in half, from 5 to 2.5 million. And that's just the broad policy stuff. If all that wasn't enough to scare the average Malagasy, her personal conduct was so erratic and id-driven that quickly everybody learned to walk softly and hold their breath around the queen. She had a stream of chosen compulsory lovers, most of whom didn't live long, for instance. But my favorite, favorite story about Queen Ranavalona is the story of the buffalo hunt. In 1845, Rana Valona suddenly decided she wanted to go on a buffalo hunt, and she wanted everyone to come with her. The whole of her court and all their attendant servants, and of course nobody could refuse, so suddenly, in a matter of days and with very little preparation or supplies, 50,000 people started out into the wilds looking for buffalo. 50,000! Once out in the forest, Ranavalona decided she didn't like roughing it and demanded that a road be built in front of the hunting party as they walked. Between hunger, exhaustion, and malaria, some 10,000 of the 50 died during the four-month tour. In all that time, not a single buffalo was killed. I mean, come on, right? If that's not worth the price of admission for this episode, what is? All right, uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself, because the back half of this story is going to go real south real fast. 
The Mad Queen died in 1861 and was succeeded by her firstborn son, Bradama II, who took after his father. He brought back the missionaries, reopened diplomatic and trade ties with the English and French, and made bunches of unpopular foreign policy concessions. In 1863, he was overthrown and replaced by the head of the army, who was prime minister in title, but managed to wrangle unopposed power by marrying three, count them three, queens in a row. The prime minister and his queens, Rasa Harina I, II, and III, westernized the country. Protestantism became the official religion, and traditional Malagasy beliefs were suppressed. A constitution was drawn, and monogamy enforced. Slowly, the French started to worm their way back onto the island. In 1883, they invaded, and war ensued. In 1885, a treaty was signed that gave the French a member on the Malagasy court and a little bit of land. The French were made to understand that they would not rule over Madagascar. Until 10 years later, when a French landing party stormed the beaches and headed straight inland to seize the capital. The prime minister was exiled, and Queen Rasaharina III signed a new treaty which named Madagascar a protectorate of France. What followed was a pretty typical 50 years of colonialism. There were guerrilla wars and insurrections, but the French maintained near-total control of the country. This came with the attendant poison pill perks of subjugation, railroads and stone buildings, better agriculture and medicine, but also severe curbs to personal and political liberty. Madagascar became a directed economy for the French, forced to grow vanilla and coffee for their European rulers at all costs, mostly the costs of hunger and death. When the First World War broke out, Malagasy troops were conscripted to fight for the French, and again in World War II. Tens of thousands of Malagasy were shipped to the Western Front, and when the French forces were defeated, the Malagasy felt that defeat most stingingly. Fueled by white supremacism, as well as propaganda which said that the brown-skinned soldiers were too savage to ever surrender, they were murdered en masse as the Nazis marched on Paris. After the fall of the French Republic, Madagascar was put under control of the puppet Vichy government, and therefore under the indirect control of the Third Reich. This might have been a good thing. Vichy France and Nazi Germany, after all, had bigger things to worry about than an island off the coast of Africa. Maybe they wouldn't even notice them. But unfortunately, Nazi Germany had a plan for Madagascar. The Constant is brought to you by Full Stack Academy. In 1988, a Norwegian couple working in data processing and money transfers for the National Bank had a fun idea. What if they rerouted the social security payments of a couple dozen citizens to funnel into their own numbered Swiss bank account? One of them built out the hack while the other fabricated the accounts. Then they both fled to Switzerland and waited for their haul, an estimated 819 million kroner, to come in. But the haul ended up being even bigger than they dreamed. More than a billion kroner which would have been great for the pair, except that the program that they'd set up only went to nine digits. The system crashed, investigators were alerted, and the lovebirds were arrested, tried, and sent to prison. This never would have happened if they'd gone to Full Stack Academy. Full Stack is one of the longest running coding boot camps in the country, with alumni going on to work for Google, Jellyvision, and JP Morgan. They teach cutting-edge software engineering skills with hands-on training right here in Chicago at far less than the cost of going back to school. And Fullstack is making it even more affordable by giving the constant listeners an additional $500 off tuition for any cohorts through April 2020. 
So head to fullstackacademy.com slash constant and get $500 off. Again, that's fullstackacademy.com slash constant for $500 off your Full Stack Academy tuition. Full Stack Academy Chicago. Get coding, get hired. And by BetterHelp. If you're struggling with any of life's many challenges, BetterHelp is available anytime, anywhere to give you a hand. They'll connect you with a professional counselor in a safe, private, online environment where you can get help on your own time, at your own pace, and through whatever means work best for you. Text, chat, phone, or video. BetterHelp has counselors that focus on any number of common issues, including depression, anxiety, grief, self-esteem, sleep problems, and relationship troubles. Your sessions are secure, convenient, professional, and best of all, affordable. Constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash theconstant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you were trying to narrow down the germ of Nazi philosophy to just one man, you could make a pretty good argument for Paul de Lagarde. Born in Berlin in 1827, he studied theology, philosophy, and, forgive the xenophobia, Oriental languages at Wittenberg in the late 1840s. In 1869, he became professor of Oriental languages at the University of Göttingen. And since I'm again forced to use the word Oriental, I should note that at this time and place, the Oriental languages in question were Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, and Coptic. So not quite the same kind of racism you might have been picturing. Lagarde's academic linguistic work was mostly focused on trying to track back the Septuagint, the first five books of the Old Testament, or Talmud, through its many translations to get the most authentic version of the text. As a scholar of languages and religious writings, Lagarde was quite accomplished and influential, but his hobbies very much overshadow whatever else he managed to do. In the 1870s and 80s, Lagarde took on German politics and religion in a variety of writings that ranged from the perplexing to the downright monstrous. He advocated for the establishment of a new German religion, something drawn from traditional folklore, but the details of what this belief system would be didn't interest him much. The most important aspect of this new faith would be that the state would work to exemplify it. 
a state that sounds a whole lot like an ur-fascism, a progenitor of the state Hitler would bring about 50 years later. Lagarde was also obsessed by hatred and distrust for a slew of imagined enemies to Germany. These included Marxists, naturally, but really bent towards minority ethnic groups whom Lagarde considered subhuman. He said he would celebrate the day the Slavs were wiped from the earth. He suggested that Germany slowly subdue and Germanize Poland. And he considered the greatest impediment to Germany to be the Jewish people, whom he didn't fully consider a people at all. He referred to them as parasites, vermin, infestations. And what did Lagarde think Germany should do about the threat of the Jews? Send them to Madagascar. Henry Hamilton Beamish was born in England in 1873 and went to South Africa to fight in the Boer Wars in 1899. After the war ended in 1903, he put down roots in South Africa, but 15 years later, he decided that the country was too overrun with Jewish influence and returned to London. There he founded the Britons, a proto-fascist group that published and disseminated anti-Semitic conspiracy propaganda under the guise of the Judaic Publishing Company. In 1919, he printed a poster that called Alfred Mond, the British Commissioner of Works, a traitor. Mond was, not coincidentally, Jewish. And he sued Beamish for libel and won. Rather than pay the fine, Beamish fled the UK. He then began a new career, traveling throughout Europe and South Africa. By 1935, he was a Nazi agent, traveling to the US, Canada, and Japan. Beamish's racism needs not be repeated or expanded upon. You've probably heard most of it before. Except for the part he borrowed from Lagarde. Send Europe's Jews to Madagascar. This message found many receptive audiences. In 1938, the French foreign minister, Georges Bonnet, told his German counterpart that they were considering sending 10,000 displaced Jewish refugees to the island. In 1941, Walter Guinness, the Secretary of State of the British colonies, proposed deporting the Jews of England, and eventually all Jews in Europe, to Madagascar. There were supporters of the idea in Romania, Norway, and the U.S. as well. I've read in several places that there was even interest in the idea among some members of the Jewish statehood movement, although I've been unable to find any primary sources to back that up. The closest thing to that I've seen comes from Poland, who in 1937 sent a commission to the island under the direction of the foreign minister Josef Beck in order to determine the feasibility of expelling their own Jewish population there. That commission included Leon Alter, the director of the Jewish Immigration Association, and Shlomo Dyke, an engineer from Tel Aviv. The delegation came away with widely varying opinions. Major Lepetki, the man in charge, concluded that up to 60,000 Jews might comfortably emigrate to Madagascar in relatively short order. Alter put the ceiling for survivability at 2,000, with Dyke pessimistic even about that. The chief problem was that the low-lying areas of the island, the jungles and coasts, weren't hospitable to Europeans, who were especially susceptible to tropical diseases like malaria and dengue. The central plateau was much friendlier to settlement, but was also already mostly settled by the Malagasy, who came out in droves to protest the plan and the commission. 
Shlomo Dyke thought it was worse off than all that. There simply wouldn't be enough food and not enough arable land to grow more. Still, the Polish and French governments agreed it was worth negotiating further. Less than a year later, the Nazis began thinking about the prospect much more seriously. In March of 38, Adolf Eichmann was told to put together a plan like what Poland and France were negotiating, but larger. While the Polish commission had estimated, at its most generous, that Madagascar could hold perhaps 60,000 Jews, Eichmann's report went substantially bigger. Four million. Approximately the total Jewish population of Germany, Austria, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. In November, Ermann Goering, Hitler's number two, helped draft a proposal for him to give to the other heads of Europe, whereby the whole continent could sweep away the Jewish problem to the African island. The president of Germany's state bank was charged with securing loans from London for the purpose. The war began in September of 1939, which put a slight pause on the planning, but it was a light enough stall that German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop was still trying to sell the idea to the Pope as part of a peace negotiation. Still, there was no obvious way to manifest the proposal, as France controlled Madagascar and Germany was at war with France. So around the same time that Ribbentrop was floating the prospect to the Pope, Hitler and the head of the Reich Ministry, Alfred Rosenberg, began formulating an alternative. A Jewish reservation, 300 to 400 square miles, centered around the Polish town of Lublin. Less than a year later, 95,000 Jews had been transported to the barbed wire confines of Lublin. But in April of 1940, the reservation was abandoned. In part, this was because the press and public were well aware of Lublin and the site was beginning to garner negative coverage. In part, it was because Hans Frank, head of the German general government of occupied Poland, didn't want to take on any more people. But there was another reason to give up on Lublin. The Madagascar plan was back on the table. In July of 1939, France surrendered. France controlled Madagascar, but now Germany controlled France. Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler said in May of 1940, However cruel and tragic each individual case may be, this method is still the mildest and best. If one rejects the Bolshevik method of physical extermination of a people out of inner conviction as un-German and impossible. The news began to spread on the wind. On July 1st, a Gestapo agent told the head of the Jewish Council of Warsaw, Adam Chernikow, that the war was almost over and that on its conclusion, all the Jews would be shipped to Madagascar. In this way, Chernikow wrote, the Zionist dream is to come true. Five days later, the diarist Victor Klemperer wrote that the Jews of Dresden were praying for Hitler's victory. The sooner the war was over, the sooner they would all go to Madagascar. Around the same time, Hans Frank, that governor general of Poland, threw a party in Krakow and there gave a toast. As soon as sea communications permit the shipment of the Jews, they shall be shipped, piece by piece, man by man, woman by woman, girl by girl. I hope, gentlemen, you will not complain on that account. The crowd burst into laughter and applause. 
While these rumors and stories flew around the Reich and beyond, it fell to Franz Rademacher, a diplomat at the Foreign Affairs Ministry, to put together the means to make the dream happen. On July 3rd, 1940, he delivered the plan. As soon as England was subdued and the Atlantic sea lanes reopened to German purposes, the boats of the British Navy and Merchant Marines would be commandeered and joined with those of the French for the purpose of ferrying all Jews out of Europe. 120 ships in total, embarking one per day with an average of 3,000 passengers, would lead 4 million to Madagascar over the course of four years. The deported would be stripped of their European citizenship as well as their possessions and capital, which would be used to pay for the venture. On the island, Germany would construct naval and air bases on the coasts, while the interior would be the new homeland of the Jewish people. A super-ghetto, in Rademacher's terms, which would have its own local governance and police, but under direct control of SS forces. In this way, Madagascar would serve three purposes simultaneously. It would rid Germany and Europe of the Jewish problem, yes. But, to quote Rademacher, Use can be made for propaganda purposes of the generosity shown by Germany in permitting cultural, economic, administrative, and legal self-administration to the Jews. It can be emphasized at the same time that our German sense of responsibility towards the world forbids us to make the gift of a sovereign state to a race which has had no independent state for thousands of years. This would still require the test of history. And last of all, the Jews will remain in German hands as a pledge to the future good behavior of the members of their race in America. Jewish Madagascar was to be a hostage nation. The plan made no mention of disease or the lack of food or shelter. It held no accounting for how so many people could be shipped at sea without sickness and death. It showed not a solitary iota of concern for either the Jewish or Malagasy people. On August 15th, it was approved as the official policy of the German government. In Warsaw, Dresden, Krakow, Leida, Minsk, Budapest, and dozens more cities across occupied Europe, construction of Jewish ghettos stopped. There would soon be no need for them. Less than two months later, the plan had to be temporarily shelved when the Luftwaffe lost the Battle of Britain on Halloween night of 1940. Without English capitulation, the Nazis lacked not only the requisite ships, but also the safe passage through Atlantic waters necessary to bring the scheme to fruition. They'd get back to it once England was finally defeated. But instead, the British army landed in Madagascar in 1942 and drove Germany out in Operation Ironclad. Then, Madagascar was turned over to Charles de Gaulle and the Free French. The Madagascar solution was officially dead. And so, a new solution was enacted. The final one. There are questions to ask. What if Germany had been able to accomplish their goal? How would the Jews of Europe fared cordoned off on a malarial island with little food or water and no roofs over their heads, watched over by SS guards intent to make them suffer. Is that better or worse than Buchenwald? Treblinka. 
Dachau, Auschwitz. And then there are the questions of intent. To what degree did Nazi Germany care about the fate of the hypothetical Madagascar-bound Jew? Were they merely indifferent, or was this always just a holocaust by a different means? Was the island meant to do what the gas chambers eventually did? Here's the answer to all those hypotheticals and conjectures, and many more besides. It doesn't matter. Today, the Madagascar plan is all but forgotten. And when it is not forgotten, it is recalled as a bit of trivia, or an example of the Nazis' ridiculous delusions. That, that is a mistake. When I was a kid, I thought of nothing but Madagascar, yet because I left out its most crucial part, its people, their history and culture, I fundamentally misunderstood what it was I thought I knew so well. When we leave out Madagascar from the Holocaust, we misunderstand the story and the lesson of that story. Hitler, Goering, Himmler, Eichmann, they become easier to ignore, to put down our watch from, because the version of the Holocaust we tell, the one that excludes Madagascar, is the story of white supremacists dead set on eradicating a people from the start. It paints the Nazis as an almost alien, incomprehensible movement with only bloodthirst in mind. But that's not how genocide works. In almost every instance, the genesis of the horror isn't a want to kill, but a want to evacuate. The first shouts aren't, die, but go home. And whether by accident or design, eventually there's a stumbling block. It always becomes impossible to remove the ones who need removing. And it's at that point that people settle for their second, final solution. Murder. Every genocide has a Madagascar. If you look out over the horizon, you might just see it. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, and Kevin McLeod. We are part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about investigating and illuminating the ideas that shape our society. I recommend you take a listen to their episode, The Myth of Modernity, a story about how we imagine the rise of science and the spread of democracy or capitalism to be the defining features of the modern age, when instead, it is more easily defined by colonialism and race. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to thousands of people who right now fear who could come kicking down their doors, this has been The Constant. <laughs>